Um, as we move into this message about Christmas, doing yourself a favor, to put your finger in Zechariah chapter 9, then put your finger in Luke chapter 2. We'll camp out most of the day in Luke chapter 2. If you don't know where Zechariah is, go right to the middle of your Bible where the Old Testament and New Testament split. Go, split. split. Go back two books. Zechariah is the next to last chapter, last, next to last book of the Old Testament. And then um, Luke is the third book of the New Testament. Is that pretty easy? Find Zechariah chapter 9, Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. Uh, we can get you one, actually. Who, doesn't, who, who wants a Bible don't have one? Well, good. You guys are all armed. Very good. In Zechariah chapter 9, you'll read these words. Rejoice. I love this because you know what? That second song we sang, I have never heard it till this morning. Zechariah chapter 9. Start at verse 9. I never heard it, never saw the words, didn't know anything about it until first service. Never. And you're going to read some things here that, and I, I mean, it's crazy to me. When I read it, I went, no. I started laughing at first. I was like, well, that's crazy. Because Patrick and I never compared. No, he, I don't think he ever saw my notes unless Leah funneled them to him while she was working on the PowerPoint or something. Um, never saw him. And uh, we're going to talk about this, this passage in Zechariah 9. Zechariah was a prophet. He has some things to say about the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ before it happened. And it says in verse 9, this will be the ESV, actually. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And there's an exclamation point, and I love that, because I believe that's how worship ought to go down. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Another exclamation point. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and from the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, now listen to these next words. This is not prophetic. I don't know what it is. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, Jesus died, shed his blood to enter into a covenant with us. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Talking about overcoming death. Verse 12 says, return to your stronghold. I love these next four words. O oh, prisoners of hope, today I declare that I will restore to you double. Psalm 9 tells us about that stronghold that he says to go back to. It says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Let's go back nearly 100 years. Christmas Eve, 1914, in a battlefield in France. The fighting is going on. World War I is taking place. In the stillness of that silent night, the Brits were gathered on one flank. The Germans were facing them. And suddenly, in a German tone, these British guys hear a melody being sung that they recognized. The song would have gone like this. Silent night. One German soldier standing. Holy night. Singing in German. Sings clear through the song. As he's singing, more German soldiers join in with the, with, with the song. And they finish. And from the British and the Allied troops, you hear this next line. Oh, come all ye faithful. 
joyful and triumphant. When they finished that song, the Germans returned the volley with O Tannenbaum. And they sing together by the end of it. They're singing together. No matter what nationality, from what side of the battle lines they're on, they call for a, a ceasefire, un, uncalled for by their authorities, their higher-ups. In fact, some of those men would get in trouble for that, some of those generals, because it hadn't been handed down from where it should have been handed down from, but they did anyway. And Jesus, in the middle of trouble, becomes a stronghold in a time of war. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Is that incredible? You know, we find ourselves in all kinds of trouble, all kinds of distress, all kinds of frustrating and mitigating circumstances. When I look at things that God does, I don't understand all of it. And it seems like to me that when he's doing something, it seems like it takes a long time. Anybody with me on that? He never does it as quick as I think he ought to. Are you with me? I mean, it's like my, my sons and my wife were baking cookies this week. And that smell filled the house. You know what I mean? And it's like they couldn't get out of the oven quick enough. You know what I mean? Or it's like that, that morning cup of coffee that you need so desperately and it starts to brew. And the, the aroma of that dark roast fills your house. And you're like, I need it. I need it now. But it's like taking forever for it to, you know what I mean? Anybody been there? Doesn't it seem like God... Amen, brother. You ever see Todd? He's always got a coffee mug in his hand. Where... <laughs> Sweet nectar of heaven. And, <laughs> and we get to watch God unfold something, and it seems like it's just taken. Like, is he ever going to get done with it? Is it ever going to materialize? It's interesting that God would choose to talk to a prophet named Zechariah and talk about the salvation that would come, and talk about this, this king that would make himself known. Because Zechariah is the next to the last book of the Old Testament. And the reason that's significant is because it would be Zechariah, then Malachi. And then for 400 years, you just read those words on that screen during that one song, for 400 years, God would be silent. He would make certain promises all throughout the Old Testament about how he was going to bring about salvation and, and save his people. And he makes promises and he just gets quiet for 400 years. How many of us have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for God to do something and we think it's never going to happen? For some of us, it might be the salvation of our children or our friends or our family. For some of us, it might be that, that, that problem that we experience that we just, it's just a flaw in our character and our makeup. And we wake up every morning wondering if it's going to affect us again today. Some kind of a sin or an addiction or, or whatever. And we're like, is it ever, am I ever, is God ever going to, ah! For some of us, it's that, it's that tension of, 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 of living paycheck to paycheck. Like, am I ever going to get ahead of the rat race? Is it ever going to, am I ever, oh. we, we wonder if God's ever really listening. Is he, is he going to do something? Where is he? These people of Israel waited 400 years and heard Zechariah speaks that he's coming. 
He tells them to be prisoners of hope. But I wonder what we're captive by. Probably like them. Captive by frustration. Captive by anger. Captive by depression and discouragement. Disease. Captive by, by everything else around, by the culture around us. We've relented and we've come into thinking like they think and doing what they do and, and everything else. And we're captive by all this stuff. But God says, I want you to be a prisoner of hope. This word hope is an amazing word because it, it, it says this. It's, it is, let me see where I'm at. It's a confidence in regard to a good and beneficial future. Confidence in regard to a good and beneficial future. Zechariah utters words to the end of, toward the end of his book, and then God gets silent for 400 years, stops talking, and he tells them to be confident that they have a good and beneficial future waiting ahead for them. Some of you, you think, you know what? Life is always going to be this way. I don't know. And you haven't even waited four years. Some of you woke up this morning, got to church, and expected your kids to be good, and you haven't been able to wait 45 minutes for that to transpire. <laughs> and already frustrated. What, what about, what, is, what has got us captive this morning? Is it hope? Or is it everything else? Is it frustration? Is it discouragement? Is it addiction? Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it some sort of entrapment we feel like we're in you know this story in in Zechariah it describes his final coming into Jerusalem Jesus it would be a prophetic utterance about Jesus coming in on Palm Sunday right the last week of his life he would come riding in on a donkey and there would be those waving palm branches and saying Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord But the amazing thing about it is that salvation he brings about at the end of that week starts in a manger in Bethlehem. He came, William just talked about God invading darkness. See, he conquered at that moment, but the completion, the fruition of it takes place at the other side of an empty tomb. It was a done deal back here in Luke chapter 2. But it takes a while for it, the full effect of it to come about. It takes 33 years in Jesus' time frame. It took over 400 from the time the words we read and are uttered for it to come to fruition. And here we are, still the, trying to figure out life, waiting for something to happen. I wonder where it's at. Where are we in this picture? Where are you in this picture? What, 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 are, what are you captive by this morning? Let's think about the people in the story. I want, I want to make a point here. This message is for everyone, and I can prove it by the, the, by the players who play out this story about the birth of Christ. There's this elderly couple who are godly people named Zachariah and Elizabeth. Read Luke chapter 1. We talked about that week 2. You can go online and check it out if you want to. Waiting and waiting and waiting for God to show his salvation. Waiting and waiting and waiting to have a child elderly people and God shows up miraculously they are godly they are elderly they're living living the life God called them to live but you know what you find later on in Luke chapter 2 there's these guys who probably aren't living that life in fact they're probably they're probably quite a bit younger they smell like sheep they are probably drinking it up while they're hanging out there on the side of the, of the hillside 
They are probably the lower, the minimum wage earners in their society. Shepherds. And God makes his announcement that his son has been born to them. Wow. And then there's this young lady, probably a teenager, named Mary. Think about her life. She's got plans. She's got dreams. She's got hopes. She's engaged, betrothed to be married. And she thinks life's going to her way. And all of a sudden, God shows up and life gets turned upside down. And then there's some commentaries that talk about this guy named Joseph. And they think maybe he was a middle-aged dude. And had been married once before. And is widowed. And Mary's family creates a, a betrothal process because they used to arrange marriages back in those days. And she's about to marry this guy named Joseph who's a working man, middle-aged working fellow maybe. I heard, I heard somebody say this week the neat thing about Joseph was the house, the house that Jesus grew up in, he was a working man. Had a toolbox in one hand and a lunchbox in the other. Got up, went to work every day. And then there's these angelic beings that get to play a part. And they're completely different than anything else we ever know. They don't, have, they don't suffer with sickness. They live in the presence of God constantly, all the time. They get, they get to, they, the Bible says that they behold the face of God continually, even though they're out roaming about doing everything. Isn't that amazing? And they get to play a part. And then God has reached out to the, to the godly priest like Zechariah and his wife, and he's reached the lowly like the shepherds, and he, he's reached to a, another kind of a lowly person named Mary and a working guy named Joseph, and the angels are involved. And then he, he reaches also to these guys who are not Hebrew, not Jewish, not a part of the covenant, probably very affluent men. We would know them as the Magi, and they would see a star in heaven, and they would come bearing great gifts. You know the story? And so what is God saying? God says, this message of hope, it's for everyone. It makes no difference what creed, what culture, what life, what background, what, how you've messed life up, how you've done life right. It makes no difference. This message is for you. This message is for me. And in this story, we're always picking on the big, there's always Mary, and there's always the shepherds, and there's always the wise men, and we'll talk about them maybe a little bit later. But there's always these side figures, like John, what parents? John, John the Baptist parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And there's Joseph, whose name never even is uttered again after Luke chapter 2. And now there's these two other people that we never see in any of the nativity scenes, which I don't get, because they probably waited the longest of anybody for this to happen. And they're found in Luke chapter 2. And let's look at their story really quickly. Luke chapter 2, I'll give you a little bit of background. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says this. These people would see his first coming into Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 9 is about his final coming as he's alive before he's, he's, he's crucified, executed. This story is about his first entrance into Jerusalem, the first time he'll walk through those gates, the first time he'll walk into the temple, the first time he'll, he'll, he'll walk that sacred ground that still is sacred in Jerusalem, the first time. He didn't really get to walk, he got carried in. Luke chapter 2 says, 22 says, then it was time for the purification offering, as required by the law of Moses, that after the birth of a child, so his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. They were following the dictates of the law. They were doing the prescribed thing. That's what brought them to Jerusalem. It was a requirement, the Levitical law, that once a child was born, you prevent an offering for his life and the purification of the mother, and then the boy would be circumcised the eighth day, according to Jewish custom. So they brought Jesus here. The other thing about the story is, check this out. If you would read between verses 22 and verse 25, we're going to start. Verse 22 and 25, it tells you that they brought turtle doves. You know what that means? Mary and Joseph have nothing. They are not people of substance. 
You know what that means? The things we hear about the Christmas story that traditionally we think are true are not. The Magi have not shown up yet. They did not show up at the stable. Matthew chapter 2, is that right? Matthew chapter 2. It says he came to the house. Wasn't Jesus born in a stable? You can read it there. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, very costly things. But yet Mary and Joseph show up at the temple, and they don't buy a goat or a lamb. They get two turtle doves because that's all they can afford. Jesus was, was not born in some upper echelon of society. He was born to a very common family, just like most of the rest of us. Had to live life on the run. Literally, he's sent to Egypt because he's running for his life, or Joseph's getting him out of the way for he has to, to save his life. We'll find out later after the Magi have come. And so, you know what that's a lesson for? Read your Bible for yourself. That's what that means. I love the story. I love the Magi came. I just want you to know it wasn't in the stable. And it wasn't where the cattle were lowing. It's not in there. You can't find that. So anyway, here's, here's Mary and Joseph. About their head the story. They're doing the thing that's common for Jewish people to do with their children. Bring them before the Lord like they should. And in verse 25, something amazing happens. At, the, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly, I love these words, was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and he revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people Israel. Verse 33 says, Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed him, blessed him, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, The child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Dude, this guy Simeon's amazing. We never hear about him in the stories. There's not, there's not Christmas carols sung about him. He, 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 he's, he's, he's been sitting there. He's eagerly waiting. He's looking for the rescue of the people of Israel. 400 years. All of his life. The word rescue in some translations are, is translated consolation. You ever had to console somebody? Another place is called, it's referred to as the comfort of Israel. The comfort of Israel was this, that the Messiah was coming. He'd been waiting for it. And he's a very unique piece of, uh, uh, of, of information about him in, in, uh, that has to do with his, the person who he is. I can see Simeon walking through the temple. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. He's come that day. That wasn't his normal mode of operation. There he is. He's a unique figure because we would consider him, I mean, he's in the temple, he ought to be one within the in crowd, but you know what you find out about him if you do some study about his life? He's not that. Matthew Henry would, read, would say this about him. He was an outcast. He dwelt now in Jerusalem, it says, 
and was eminent for his piety and his communion with God. Some learned men who have been conversant with the Jewish writers find that there was at, the to- at, the- at this time in Jerusalem one Simeon, a man of great note in Jerusalem, the son of Hillel, who was a rabbi, and the first to whom they give the title of Rabban, which is the highest title they may give to their doctors, learned people, which was never given to but seven men in all of Israel. This, this guy that we're talking about. Okay, which sounds like he's really in, right? But let's keep reading. He succeeded his father Hillel as the president of the college which his father founded and of the great Sanhedrin. You remember the Sanhedrin? They're the guys who crucified Jesus. Okay? Took him before the court and all that stuff. The Jews say that he was endued with a prophetical spirit and that he was turned out of his place because he witnessed against the common opinion of the Jews concerning the temporal kingdom of the Messiah. Be see, see his, his, Simeon's view was this. They were waiting for Jesus to come and set up a kingship, a monarchy. They were waiting for him to come and literally set up a government and run it and do away with Rome. That, that's what they were banking on. He saw into the scriptures and read the truth that this would be an eternal kingdom, not a temporary one, that's set up by political means and, and places. And he was ostracized and kicked aside because of that. He saw the reality, the truth of scripture, and it cost him. Wow. And so not only do we have these people who are in like the Magi, and, 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 and kind of, we have a guy who's in the religious order of things and kicked to the curb. Wow. Some of us feel like, you know, we just don't fit any place. Some of us feel like, you know, there's just, there's no place for us. But listen, you have a role to play in the story that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Big deal the people at work don't believe like you believe. Big deal the rest of your family doesn't get it. Big deal. Listen, Jesus knows who you are, where you are. Maybe some of you aren't even following Jesus yet, but you've got questions about life. Every time you bring it up, maybe your brother, your sister, your mother, your father goes, what are you talking about? You're like, dude, there's got to be something more to this. And you're trying to figure it all out? And it's like, and it's costing you because they don't want to talk about that. Think about that for just a minute. This guy, Simeon, he's, he's that guy. His father is one of the higher up dudes in the whole, the whole shebang. His dad doesn't even have anything to do with him. Like, get out of here. You know what you'll find out about him as well? His son... His son's name, which some of you will recognize if you want, his son's name is Gamaliel. Gamaliel would be the mentor to a guy named Saul, who would later be referred to as Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Isn't that crazy? And here are these guys playing this part. It's like it skips generations. Like Simeon gets it, Gamaliel really don't get it, and then Paul gets it. You know what I mean? For all practical purposes, Gamaliel was, was Paul's father in the faith. You know what I mean? He taught him everything he knew about, 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 about Jewish faith, about the scripture, about everything. And Paul, using the information that was given to him through Gamaliel and the power of the Holy Spirit, and doing it, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. That's crazy. And is that Gamaliel would be the guy in Acts chapter 3 where Peter and John heal the guy by the great, the great beautiful priest of the gospel. People go crazy, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel's serving there. And they're like, hey, what do we do with these guys? We don't know what to do with them. And Gamaliel makes these, make, makes these profound statements. If this is of God, we cannot kick against it. If it's not of God, it will fail. So my admonition to all of us is to back off. Maybe send him out of here, tell him about the preaching, Jesus, see what happens. That guy utters those words. The son of this guy in the temple utters those words in Acts chapter 3. Isn't that crazy? 
And so this guy, Gamaliel, is an outcast, but he plays a very big role in the whole story of the gospel. Is that amazing? And you may be sitting here, and you feel like, man, I've tried to talk to my old friends. They don't, they don't get it. I want them to understand, but they don't still get it. And they, I see things differently than they see it, and I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm trying to help them make sense, and they just don't want to talk to me. Every time I bring it up, they just want to, listen, keep, don't, don't be afraid to keep hoping and believing like Simeon did. Simeon finds himself being directed by the Holy Spirit to show up at the temple. This was not his motive. I, I figure, because he's an outcast, the temple is probably one of his least favorite places to go. He's going to run all those Pharisees and all those Sanhedrin people and all those lawyers and scribes and Sadducees and all those people who gave Jesus a hard time. He would have to keep running into them because he didn't agree with them. They were giving him a hard time. So led by the Spirit, he walks into the temple. It reminds me of Zechariah, Psalm 23, 37, 23. The steps of the godly are ordered of the Lord. Out of the ordinary, he walks into the temple. At that very moment, he finds Mary and Joseph and the baby. And they say nothing to him. He grabs the child. He's been waiting for however long. And he sees this baby and he knows. The Bible, the, the, this commentary said that he was known to have a prophetical spirit. I don't think that's proper English. I never heard of the word prophetical. But it was in there. He was known to have that. And God speaks to him that this is it. This this what you've been waiting for, hoping for, looking for, praying for, reading about. It's here. Oh, man, can you imagine that? How many of you have been waiting for something? Been waiting for God to show up. Waiting for God to save someone. Wait, Shirley's raising her hand. Right here where Mona's sitting, Mona, Mona, Mona and, and Shirley are, are, are sisters. First service, sitting right here where Donna and Mona are sitting, is Mona's dad and mom. Shirley's mom and stepdad. Sitting right here. You know what's amazing about that? Jaretta served Jesus for how many years? How many years? Forever. Forever. Five years ago this Easter, Daryl walks down this aisleway. Never forget it. Never forget it. You know why I don't? You know why I don't? Because I, I was like, I knew they had been praying for Daryl forever. And finally, in his 70s, the man goes, okay, good. Let's do this thing called salvation. I like that. And he's been walking with Jesus ever since. Who have you been waiting on? What have you been praying about? I don't know. Have you waited 400 years? Probably not. Why are you giving up now? Huh? What are you, what are you, what, what, why are you giving in, giving up? There is something eternal about this. God is out, works outside the realm of time and space and substance and matter. He, he works outside of that. And whatever he's doing, he'll do it in his own time. It'll be the right time, not your time. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be correct. It'll be powerful. It'll be strong. And he'll receive glory for it. Amen. And here's Simeon waiting at the, in the temple. I bet he's singing that song. And all of a sudden, he's walking. Come all come, man, man, you, hell, there he is, boom, ransom captive Israel. Simeon knew that Israel might have been captive by the Romans, but there was something that had, more sinister that had them. It was called darkness. It was called sin. It was called Satan. And if they were going to really be free, it wouldn't be just about the Roman government, it would be about the condition of their hearts. And he saw it. And he believed that it was him. Wow. God ordered his steps. You know what's amazing about that story? <laughs> he says, okay, I'm done. 
He, he meets the, the Savior. You know what he says? I'm done. God, my life is complete. I can die now. That's what he says. I, I'm finished. My life is completely whole. I, am, I, am, there, I don't have to do one more thing with my life. I don't have to be one more place. I don't have to do nothing else. My life is fulfilled. My life is complete. See, when Jesus finds you, I thought you said Simeon found him. Wrong. Jesus would look at some apostles later on down the road, and he'd go, you did not choose me, I chose you. And Peter would be like, oh, I got out of the boat. No, Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. He looked at Nathaniel and said, didn't I see you underneath the tree? How an infant child can pull strings enough to get a grown elderly man to show up at the temple at the right time? I have no idea. I know God did it. I don't know how he did it. That's good. I don't know how it worked out. He just did it. And he found Simeon that day in the temple. What if Mary and Joseph had decided something? I'm getting some big theological debate, okay? I don't know, you know, your particular theological swing, but let's just theorize for a minute. What if, you know, something happened, Mary comes down with the flu, they're supposed to give an offering. I don't know what would have happened, but God would have got it worked out. And Simeon had been there. What if Simeon woke up, you know, hit the, hit the snooze alarm too many times that morning? I don't know. But God somehow worked it out and got him there to see that baby. And his life was made complete whole and well complete when you when jesus finds you and you make connection with him everything everything becomes whole everything come becomes complete there's nothing else has begun done into your life nothing else has to be given to your life nothing else has to be right about your life but you are complete well pastor aaron i'm not you know what you probably haven't given your whole self to jesus yet Because what Jesus wants is your whole heart, not just a piece of it. And what I know about Simeon, God had his whole heart. And when he lays eyes on this baby, his life is complete, whole. Well, I'm days I, 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 this nothing else. I don't have to do, I don't have to have anything else. I don't have to be nothing else. I don't have to draw one more paycheck. I don't have to live in a big house. I don't have to drive the big car. I don't have to have any of that. I don't have to have this big meal set before me. I don't have to have nothing. I have found Jesus. Wow. And that we live as if we're lacking something. We live as if there's still something we need Jesus and something else. We live as if we need Jesus and a good job, Jesus and the right house, Jesus and the right friends, Jesus and and, and the right right amount in the the, the bank account, Jesus and the right career, Jesus and the right husband, Jesus and the right wife, Jesus and good kids. Amen, brother. Good luck to that. We don't need nothing. We need him. Oh, boy. Pastor, we didn't come to hear that this morning. What are you going to get anyway? Can't we just sing O Silent Night and go home? No. We intend for your life to change today. That's why. And we'll sing Silent Night, but we're going to give you the message anywho. (laughs) 
Simeon says, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Here was not only the Savior, but he represented even as an infant salvation itself. Wrapped up in the life of this child was all the hope there could ever be in the world of sadness and pain. Thank you, Mr. Henry. That's beautiful words to me, man. That's just beautiful. It's not scripture, but that dude got nailed it right on top of the head, man. If you read further down, there's this other player in this story. She shows up just as Simeon's pronouncing things to, 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 to Mary. And her name's Anna. And if you look at verse 36, you'll read this. Anna, a prophet or a prophetess, was also there in the temple. And she was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. And she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. See, Anna's on the other side of the equation. She's not there by chance or by circumstance. She's there kind of on purpose. That's what she did every day. I don't know when God's going to materialize the, the, the whole fulfillment, the hope of salvation in your life, the things you're waiting on. For some of you, it may require you to listen to the voice of God and show up someplace at a specific time like Simeon. We have words up on that screen every week. Has the, the church triumphant look when it says, when disciples send. See, the Holy Spirit sent Simeon into that temple that day on purpose, intentionally. And sometimes it works like that. Just the randomness of life. And you'd make a decision and end up at the right place at the right time because God directed your steps. And there are days like those shepherds out there in the field. They were just doing everyday life. They were out there working, just living it up and doing what they had to do. And that's what Anna finds herself doing. In the middle of her everydayness, yes, I made that word up. In the middle of her everydayness, something miraculous happens. You know why I tell you that? Because I don't want you to think your story's got to be just like so-and-so's. For some people, God will absolutely do something kind of wild and crazy off the chart. Bam, they just the right place at the right time. For some of us, we will just happen to be living life. And it materializes. We're not doing anything different. We're eating the same Cheerios we eat every morning, the same cup of coffee, driving the same car, the same route, the same thing, and blam, we just end up where God wants us to be. We don't know how it happened, just did and for some of us, it will be miraculous that we were even there in the first place because it wasn't normal for us. Don't compare somebody else's story to your story. God has something specific for you. The only thing Simeon and, and Anna have in common, that's just who think they're very old, we think. We're not sure what Simeon's age was, but the Bible said very, very plainly here that Anna was very old. We know she lives 84 years after her husband died. You know what I said? Did I read that correctly? Huh? Either way. Okay. So, she was very old. Simeon was pretty old, we presume. And here, they happen to be in the temple at the same time. But Simeon's out of his way, the normal, and she's right on normal. Isn't that wild? And she, what they do have in common is they've waited a very long time. It happened... She's a widow, and she's elderly. You talk about somebody needing comfort and needing hope, needing to, to know that God is with her and for her. Eighty-four years she lived 
She was probably Mary's age because they all got married right after they had their bat mitzvah. They were about 13 years old. They were betrothed, and soon after that, they would get married. And then, so somewhere probably around the age of 20, her husband dies, and now she's 84 when she passes, and she's lived that long by herself. You talk about needing comfort. You talk about needing hope. You talk about needing somebody to fill the gaps and help her out. I don't know where you feel like the gaps are. I don't know where you feel like the holes are. I don't know what kind of comfort, what kind of hope, what kind of help, what kind of strength you need. But Anna tells us if we hang on, he will do something amazing in our lives. She is there for our benefit and for our help and for our encouragement. God puts her there on purpose. You know, for anything else, you've, you can make it a little bit longer. You can keep going. You can, you can keep trucking down the path God has for you. When's it going to happen? I don't know. She found redemption that day. Rescue. One translation says rescue. One translation says redemption. You know what redemption means? To buy back from bondage. I don't know what some of you are dealing with. Some of you feel trapped. You just do. You feel trapped to, 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 to life. You feel trapped to the job you do. You feel trapped to the spouse you live with. You feel, you feel trapped by the addictions that you have or the pornography you contend with or, or whatever it is. You feel trapped. And the message of Anna is this. Hope has come to us today. He has redeemed us from the bondage. He has taken away our guilt and our shame. He has made us free. If the sun sets us free, we are free indeed. To restore what has been taken. You keep looking for something else to fill it. It's not going to happen. You will, you will find that when you find him, you will find completeness. You will find that you're complete in him. Colossians chapter 2, Paul would write this after being mentored by Simeon's son. Verse 8 says, don't let anyone capture you. I think those are odd words. We've been talking about being a captive, a prisoner of hope. He said, don't be captured by empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from other spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Verse 9 says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. You don't need anything else. You need him. So you also are complete, listen to these words, Look at your neighbor and say, he's talking to you. Look at him. Do it, do it. I mean, we're very interactive here. Because we ain't talking about somebody else. We're talking about you. And we're talking about me. So you also are complete. <laughs> I love that. You also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Now, here's what's cool about this piece of Scripture. Jesus was coming there to be circumcised, right, in Luke, in Luke chapter 2. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised. He's talking to some Jewish people. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but he says, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Man, that's awesome. 
You find completeness when you find yourself not just hanging out at the manger. You find completeness when you walk the path with Jesus all the way through the cross to the other side of the empty tomb, all the way to him coming again in heaven. That's when you find completeness. If you hang out and just camp out at any one of those places, you will never find completeness. You will find, never find hope. But you keep walking the journey all the way down through all of them. You will find that you are complete. You find you have a reason to rejoice. You, you will find you have a reason for hope. Because you are complete in knowing that. Because you are not of this world at that moment. You are of another world. You, the old has gone. The new has come, the scriptures say. And even if something goes south here in this arena of life that we live in, we still have the hope of heaven. Well, how do you know? We just know in our knower, man. How do you know? I just know. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The Bible says his spirit wears witness with my spirit that I'm the son of God. I can't make sense of that. That's called faith. It's like trying to make sense of God. I can't figure him out. He's bigger than I am. I don't get how the pieces put together. They just do. Looking at Patrick, he's up here crying. A grown 40-something old man. Why? Because the hope of heaven invaded his life into the darkness that was Patrick Clevenger on June, July the 14th, 1991. He can't make sense of it. He can't statistically analyze it, psychologically analyze it. Psych, psych, what's the word, doctor? Psych, 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 something. He can't, but he knows that something happened on the inside. His life is different. He's a new creature. And the people who knew him in 1991 would testify, this is not the same guy anymore. And God don't love Patrick more than he loves you. That's what that whole story was coming up to this thing with John, John's parents and, and the angels and, and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and all that. He loves every one of us. He's no respecter of persons. He wants you and he loves you. Hope is this. Hope is there's a better day in him. If we are in him, there is a better day. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, one of the most famous prophetic statements about the birth of Christ. For unto us a child is born. Us, to us a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. Listen to this word. The passionate commitment of the Lord will do this. Hope changes everything before everything changes. You know why? Because hope changes us. Simeon walks out of the temple that day. He's still an outcast. That hasn't changed. Simeon walks out of the temple that day. He is still old. That hasn't changed. Israel is still under Roman rule. That has not changed. But life is different for Simeon because hope changed him. Anna walks out of the temple still a widow. She walks out of the temple still lonely. She still walks out of the temple under the same Roman rule that Simeon walked out under. But hope changed everything because hope 
changed Anna. You may leave here from church today and your whole family life is just like it was when you walked in the door. Your work environment tomorrow may be the same as it was and you're still frustrated and testy and messed up. Some of you may be dreading the the Christmas Eve family gathering because you just know how things go and what's going to happen. Some of that will never change. But when hope invades the darkness that is this life, it changes everything. You can walk. See, the war was still going on in 1914. But I wonder how many guys that night on that battlefield, suddenly their whole perspective, everything changed, even though they still had a weapon in their hand, even though they were still down in a foxhole, even though that was going because Jesus invaded the darkness of that battlefield. Oh, my goodness. If we can grab a hold of that, he, it said he would, the, the word peace, he would be called the prince of peace. You know what I did a verse on that? You know what that word peace can mean? The Hebrew word for peace can mean shalom. I didn't know this until I, I was about to wrap up the message. I was just doing a quick word study of these last words. Then I had everything put together. The word peace can mean completeness. He's the prince of completeness. You're looking for wholeness? You're looking for what, something to make life sense? You're looking to put the pieces together? There it is. There he is. It says he will judge with fairness. I've proven to you. He doesn't care where you come from, what color you are, what your socioeconomic background is. He don't care what creed you participate in. He cares nothing about that. He cares that you respond to him. That's fairness. I can't judge that way. I got a preconceived idea about how things ought to be. I try really hard to get it right, and I mess it up every time. But he is not like that. And he knows more about you than I do. He judges with justice. Means he judges rightly. Every the Deuteronomy says this in chapter thirty two. Everything God does is right and perfect. It may not look like it to us, it may not make sense to us, but when he does it, he does it right. Man, and he and, and he, he he is the one with passionate commitment. He was so committed to this, he died on purpose. And he didn't just die, he said, I'm coming back for round two. I'm coming back out of this thing, we're gonna fight again. I'm going to win the whole ball of wax. Romans 8 says this, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We can't be separated from the love of God if we don't choose Christ Jesus. The reason Simeon utters the words he says is he will be for the rise of many and the fall of many. The people who rose with him are the ones who believed in him, trusted in him. In fact, we will keep rising until one day we walk on streets of gold. The Bible tells us that. In heaven somewhere, we will keep rising. Those who fail are those who refuse to acknowledge who Jesus was. He will be the cornerstone that many were dashed upon, the scriptures say. They still don't get it. I mean, I, you look around the, this world of ours, you can, you, can, you can believe in anything, but if you utter the name of Jesus, you are intolerant, you're a bigot, you're whatever. Why is it just him? Would somebody please tell me? Huh? When he's the one who's really fair. He's the one who really judges rightly. He's the one who really takes anybody just like they are. He won't leave you like you are, but he'll take you the way you are. It's true. Because you can't fix yourself anyway. I can't fix myself. Huh? Isn't that true? He's passionately committed to helping you walk out what God created you for. And that predominantly is knowing him. And there's other things that come along with that. They're like icing on the cake. <laughs> Today, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you've been waiting for. I don't know what, what situations that just keep 
plaguing you and keep messing with you. And you wonder if it's ever going to happen. Is it ever going to show up? Is it ever going to materialize? Is it ever going to go on? Am I, is my life ever going to be right? Is everything ever going to go? Is my mom and dad ever going to get right with Jesus? Is my, am I, are my kids ever going to get right with Jesus? Is, 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 is the people around me ever going to stop giving me a hard time? I don't know what those things are. But I will tell you this. Hope changes everything when hope changes you. And when you let hope invade your life, it can change your perspective. It can change your situation. It can change your circumstances without anything else being altered at all. And that's awesome. The Bible says in this, Romans 8.28 says, but we know, Paul writes this, we know, that's me, that's confident hope, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. This Christmas, I want to be just Christmas like normal. Pencil and holly, gifts and balls and evergreen and whatever, bows and let it be about hope invading your life. Stand up with me, if you would.